we know that one of the biggest barriers to having less judgmental policies, let's call them, is the deep culture of stigma in this country against poverty, people who are experiencing poverty, and the programs who serve people who are experiencing poverty. With this deep culture of stigma against poverty and people experiencing poverty, we don't know, do we get less judgmental policies by addressing this culture of stigma and trying to reduce the culture of stigma? Or do we get less stigma by addressing the policies themselves and trying to make them less judgmental? Food is how you physically function, your mental ability, your ability to be warm and inclusive and listening. You only are able to do that if you've eaten that day. If you've had like a good meal you felt good about. Um, and if students are going to college to get a better life, then how are we setting them on that path when they're miserable throughout the experience, when they can barely make it through? And if they are able to make it through, it would change their entire life, their entire family's life. Welcome to Purple Honey, a gathering of female voices where we explore how Jewish wisdom and feminine spirituality can bring sweetness to our everyday lives. I am your host, Jody Bayless. When Passover approaches as it is now, I search for threads that I can connect to. I find myself digging for new words or poems to enhance the Seder and to inspire me to grow and to expand as Passover calls us to do. This year, it is a very small phrase already deeply set into the Seder that grabs my attention. All who are hungry, come and eat. This one invitation to sit around the table, all who are hungry, come and eat, strikes me as a call for collective conversation where multiple perspectives and voices are represented. It also strikes me as visionary. What would it look like where all who were hungry could come to the table and eat. The reality is that 40 million Americans, from parents to children to seniors to college students, don't know when their next meal is coming. And as food systems, political systems, and other social systems set the table, vulnerable populations are not only excluded from joining in on the meal, their voices are often left unheard. Today I am in conversation with two brilliant women who offer wisdom, perspective, and innovative solutions to addressing hunger. Naama Haviv is Development Director with Mazon, a Jewish response to hunger, an organization advocating for policy change to ensure vulnerable populations don't slip through the cracks. Mazon also mobilizes and educates a national network of synagogues and Jewish leaders inspiring action. I also talk with Rachel Sumek, founder and CEO of Swipe Out Hunger, a program that addresses hunger on college campuses where students donate unredeemed meal points for their food insecure peers. First, here's my conversation with Naama Haviv from Mazon, a Jewish response to hunger. What has been your professional journey in, in getting into this work around hunger? So, um... It's funny because this isn't something that I thought that I would do, but 
it never occurred to me that this is something that I would do. And then when I was offered the opportunity to, it made perfect sense. Um, I spent most of my career in international development um, and focused on uh, really human rights and a lot of work around violence against women and uh, anti-genocide work because I like to be a huge hit at parties. Um, <laughs> in Sudan at Congo. Um, but um, in 2016, after the election happened, not to get too political on your podcast, but it became clear that the advocacy work that I truly loved doing on, at the time I was working on Congo, um, was going to be, was going to have very limited success um, during this administration, mm. just, just mm -hmm. based on, based on a lot of factors, not least of which was the level of interest in actually negotiating for better human rights, uh, with somewhere like Congo, um, and the, the, until recently president of Congo, Joseph Kabila. So really what I loved about that work that avenue for impact was going to disappear. And also the election for me threw into stark relief um, some pretty glaring inequalities in my own country that I'd mm. never focused on in my professional career. I'd always focused on, you know, what I thought of the worst as of the worst crimes against humanity around the world. Um, and there were some stark challenges here in the United States. Um, and between those issues being highlighted for me and my daughter growing older and realizing that I was going to have to sort of explain to her why I focus distantly and not here at home, um, I really wanted to start focusing domestically um, and had the opportunity to do so. So when the opportunity came up to work with Mazon, for me, it was a no-brainer, actually. And it made total sense, um, first, because the president and CEO of Mazon, Abby Liebman, is an incredible woman who I have been blessed to know for several years, and she's always been an incredible source of feedback and advice for me. She's been an, an amazing mentor and somebody that I've really looked up to over the years. So the idea of working directly for her was just, you know, you don't pass that opportunity up so easily in this world. Um, and then also the more I started thinking about hunger in the United States and in Israel, um, you know, it makes perfect sense for me. Like, I don't know why I didn't come up with this on my own without the universe sort of throwing it at me because mm. I, food is the center of my life. I had a Vitamix blender on loan for the weekend this weekend, and I did nothing but make my own tahini. Like there was not a sesame seed in a five mile radius that was safe <laughs> from my blender. <laughs> I... From... <laughs> I just descended into a, like, what's better, toasting the sesame seeds or not toasting the sesame seeds? How long should I toast the sesame seeds? I'm going to not toast the sesame seeds. What kind of oil is better? And now I have, I am not even kidding you, I have nine pints of tahini in my fridge, and I have to give them away. They're only good for a month. Food is, 
really the center of my life. I am obsessed with food. I'm not just obsessed with good food. I am obsessed with the sort of like culture of, or really my culture and how it is expressed through food um, and my heritage and how it is expressed through food. Um, and, uh, and the idea of people being cut off from that in any way because they don't know mm. where their next meal is going to come from and because if they do have a next meal they've made deep sacrifices about what kind of food it is just to feed their bellies is heartbreaking to me and i really probably should have been working on this all along um and don't know can't explain how it took me so long to get here uh, i am just deeply grateful that I have the opportunity to do so now. I think more than anything, the work that I did internationally has given me uh, a language with which to talk about vulnerable populations and think about vulnerable populations. And I've... <laughs> I spent a lot of my career thinking that as bad as anything could get in the United States, we were still living in a position of privilege. And that is not at all mm. true. That is for a lot of people in this country, that is not at all true. Um, and there are inequalities in the system that uh, are just as stark and just as unjust as anything that we were facing in Congo. Um, and mm -hmm. the more polarized our political system becomes and the more polarized our economic system becomes, the truer that is. I think that I would not have taken on this work if this was not true about this organization, um, that the focus on advocacy and public policy change um, has really been where my heart was in the international development world as well. Even when I did work that focused at least a bit on direct service, there was always advocacy and public policy components to all of that work because mm -hmm. the problems were, and, and it was, you know, when you're dealing with something like genocide, it's clear that the solution isn't just a humanitarian solution, right? Like, this is a political problem and you don't have to argue to anybody that there must, of course, be a political solution to the end of a war, the end of an intractable conflict. Um, and here in the United States, it's it's actually a lot harder to convince people that hunger is hunger is not a supply side problem. Hunger is a political problem. And it has political mm. solutions. And this is why Mazon's focus on advocacy and public policy work was so attractive to me and where I have something to add as well. And I can actually have value here because this is changing the system that allows people to be hungry in this country is actually what needs to happen. Of course, we need to be able to feed people along the way. Of course, the emergency food system, the charitable food system is incredibly valuable and absolutely, unfortunately necessary. But there are 40 million people in this country and charity cannot hold up this burden. It has to be a governmental response, um, a governmental response mm. to the immediate need and a governmental response to the system that allows this hunger to persist. We turn our eyes towards the 
populations in this country who are going underserved both by the government and by the rest of the anti-hunger community. Who is being overlooked and underserved? Not out of any malintention, but because, you know, government designs solutions for what they perceive as the mainstream problem. And everybody who is not within that mainstream problem, their need is not less, but their needs are not being met. So we see, um, this is actually uh, our, our president and CEO, Abby Liebman, her superpower is the ability to like keep her ear to the ground and hear different threads of conversations from all around the country and under like pull those threads together into a larger concern and a larger trend and identify that trend. So she was really the first to put her finger on the idea that the realization that currently serving military families in this country are going hungry. People who have are quite literally at this moment writing a blank check with their lives to the American public to defend mm -hmm. the freedom that our country stands for are going to bed hungry at night, do not know where their next meal is coming from, cannot make ends meet for their families. Um, and it's happening in part because of military pay, which is a whole other issue. Um, but the immediate crisis is that uh, um, Military families who uh, are, are early on in their enlistee process or in the, their enlistee level, um, they if they live off of base, they receive something called the Basic Allowance for Housing, a BAH. And that BAH is being figured into their income when applying for SNAP and disqualifying them from SNAP. Even though if they oh, lived wow. on base, they would simply be uh, living in subsidized housing. And even though that BAH is not counted towards their income for tax purposes, because it's not specifically excluded in the like, there's like a list of income sources that can be excluded from consideration for SNAP. And because it's not specifically excluded, it is included. And so... <laughs> We have to, this is an oversight in the law and we have to correct that oversight. Yeah. And we've been trying, Mazon's job is to find a policy solution to correct that oversight. We've had one avenue over the last few years that we tried to explore and it didn't work. Uh, it nearly worked and then it didn't work at the last minute. Um, it didn't proceed. Um, just we got, it got shot down on a procedural issue, which is the giant bummer. And so now we're hard at work on a new policy solution that I wish I could tell you more about, but it's a little quieter, so we can't um, yeah. talk about it too, too much. Um, so that's really exciting work. On that level, we do a yeah. lot of work on veteran food insecurity. And because of Mazon's advocacy with the uh, Department of Veteran Affairs, the VA for the first time about a year and a half ago started screening veterans for food insecurity oh. as a part of their intake process. The screening so isn't important. perfect. Wow. The screening isn't perfect. The follow-up isn't perfect, which leaves us additional avenues for advocacy. Um, but, you know, already about 3 million veterans have been screened, a little bit more than 3 million. And that's really, really exciting work. We do a lot of work with tribal communities, native communities, 
um, and are the only we were the only non-native members of the Native Farm Bill Coalition to make sure that the needs of Native communities were protected in the latest Farm Bill discussion, which, um, as you know, but as maybe not all of your listeners know, is the giant omnibus legislation that comes up once every five years that uh, allocates funding for and uh, regulates all of our nutrition programs, or most of our nutrition programs in the United right. States, um, like SNAP and all of that. Um, so we do a lot of that work. We do a lot of work on senior hunger and specifically LGBT senior hunger. So I believe you're also doing some work in campus colleges. We are. Well, campuses. Yes. Thank you for reminding me. Yeah, we do a lot of work on college hunger. We were actually, that was another mm -hmm. trend that our staff identified. Um, I think it was Abby, but I'm not sure. So I don't want to give credit to any particular person. Um, but we really identified this trend that college students, um, and in particular, uh, community college students, but not only community college students across the country were going hungry. Um, and it's not, you know, our staff, Mia Hubbard, our vice president of programs likes to say that it's not a top ramen problem. This isn't like the, you know, the mm -hmm. sort of expectation of college hunger where they're growing teenagers and they, you know, they, they subsist on free pizza from club meetings and top ramen and you know they're just not eating well it's that they don't have access to food and they don't have access to the programs that would help them get food and the common denominator between all of these populations is that they all experience really unique barriers in accessing the food assistance that they need and they deserve um we yeah. think of you know, the word entitlement has gotten a really bad connotation in the last few years. And that's a bummer because people are entitled to things for which they have, you know, they paid into the system so that if ever there yeah. came a time that they needed a safety net, that safety net would be there. You were talking about all of these areas, all of this good work you're doing around military um, working, supporting military families, you know, looking um, mm -hmm. on the policy level and um, at where groups of people such as seniors, military families, um, students on college campuses, where they really slip through the cracks versus, right. um, as you were saying, like there's this kind of perception of in entitlement programs and like how they're used versus like, right. there are people in need who just don't have access to particular programs. Um, and Mazon right. is working to, um, to support access for these groups. That's one piece of your work. Right. So Mazon's kind of wider vision is that we, and this is not our official vision statement, so <laughs> I don't want to make it seem like that, but just, you know, we want a response to hunger from our federal government that meets everybody's needs and meets the needs of everybody who has needs and does so without judgment. Are, are there like other certain like Jewish values that are drawn out in the work you do that drive the work you do? I think so. And I mean, I think this is, so some of it is in the intangibles, right? I don't know that we necessarily spend all of our time naming the specific Jewish values. Like we, we actually do talk about B'Tselem Elohim 
a lot around here um, as a specific Jewish value that, you know, mm. I, I think we all relate to a little bit more than the more nebulous Tikkun Olam, repairing the world, um, mm-hmm. because it has some real purpose around it. Um, a lot of us around here uh, have actually had the experience of learning from and working with uh, Rabbi Harold Schulweis, who passed away a few years ago. He was an incredible thinker in the conservative movement. Um, he was the co-founder of Jewish World Watch, uh, which is the mm. uh, Jewish anti-genocide organization that I worked with for eight years. And uh, another one of our staff members also worked with for eight years. And Abby Liebman, when she was uh, a consultant and not a Mazon CEO, um, actually helped to write the mission statement for that organization at her kitchen table. Um, and so we were all very involved there and very involved with Rabbi Schulweis. And he had this teaching that has stuck with me forever and that I feel like we go back to a lot at Mazon, which is that he, he would say that the most important word in Jewish liturgy is uh, in biblical Hebrew, the word alken, and in, in modern Hebrew, the word ulechen, which means, and therefore. And that everything that you read in the Torah and the Tanakh and everything, every story that you read, at the end of the story, it says, ulechen, and therefore, this is what we do as Jews. Like, we've read all of this, and now here's what we do with that information. And deeds and not words are the true mark of faith, and that we have to live our values daily. He would say that God is not believed, God is behaved. And this Mm. is something that like, you know, I don't think that we necessarily Mm. voice it, but I see us going back to at every staff meeting, at every board meeting, there's, you know, a discussion of like, here's what we know about what's happening in the world. What do we do with this information? How do we move forward? How do we move forward in a way that uh, is attached to our mission and attached to our values? Because our mission is attached to our values. Um, and it's, it's, I have to say, a, a deeply gratifying way to work, to uh, work in an organization mm-hmm. that is sort of constantly gut checking itself to make sure that what we're doing is not just right for the work, but right. You know, mm-hmm. it's great. Yeah. Wow, that's that's so powerful. Um, so powerful to take that teaching and 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 infuse it and kind of layer it onto your work of like and and when I was hearing you say that, um, I think you were mentioning like your CEO really just has her her ear to the ground to really like track like she what does. are these trends. That that's so powerful she, because um, it, and like you were saying, being a smaller. Um, organization, you can be nimble and really like, um, and and be flexible to you know what is, you know, as things are kind of kind of coming up, um, and so that sort of um, that sort of reinforces or, or you know reinforces this Jewish way of like okay, well we can, um, see, you know, senior senior hungers on the rise or military families, mm-hmm. like you can really you can really assess what's going on and then and then act. Um, exactly. in this, inspired by this, in this Jewish way. Our public education work is really focused on, at least in the Jewish community, we should be able to lead the charge 
against this culture of stigma because we know because everything in our teachings and everything in our heritage says to take care of the vulnerable without judgment to take care of the, the vulnerable. This is, this is like a guiding light in Judaism. Take care of the vulnerable around you and, you know, like give and then don't ask questions is, is sort of the deal. Yeah. Um, and, and not just give, but fix, repair the world and don't ask questions because it's your job too, because it's our job as a people. We had a big project called This is Hunger that toured the country for 16 months. It was a really powerful, immersive experience that felt like you were sitting at a table with six people who had experienced food insecurity. It's sort of part, uh, wow. I, 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 part, it was like a film that made you feel like you were in the midst of the film set at a table and the whole thing was built inside an 18 wheeler truck and we drove it around the country for eight for 16 months and about 15,000 people uh within and outside of the jewish community saw that um which is a remarkable number when you realize that only 30 people could be at the truck at any given time so 15,000 people in 16 months is a lot of people in this <laughs> giant but yeah. limited capacity truck um, we've now built that exhibit into a permanent space here in Los Angeles and in Sino. Um, So people here can come see it. But more excitingly, we are launching a digital version of the experience. It's, of course, not as immersive as actually sitting at the table and feeling like you're meeting these people. But we were like, if we can get 75% of the way there, this is still going to be a deeply powerful experience. So there will be the end result will probably be about a 12 to 14 minute uh, single screen video experience, digital experience with a ton of additional materials that teachers and mm -hmm. educators and rabbis and anybody who wants to screen this for their community can use all of the activities that we had on the truck and a little bit more. The big thread of This is Hunger is to remind people that everyone is, or not everyone, but so many people in this country are just one crisis away from very real poverty. And then millions more yeah. are already in it, already had their crises and are already in it. Um, and it can happen to any of us, you know, one errantly timed medical emergency can wipe you out. It can happen to anyone. One loss of a family member who's a breadwinner one uh -huh. massive job loss and the inability to find a new one. You know, we're, if the recession taught us anything, it's that anyone can have the rug pulled out from under them, even when they'd given 20 years to a company. So, um, yeah. so that's, that's the thrust of a, a lot of our education work. And because we work within the Jewish community. Um, we think that it's really important for our leaders to be able to have these discussions at the community level. And that really means our rabbis yeah. and our educators. So this uh, spring, this April, we are for the second time bringing rabbis uh, out onto the hill in Washington, D.C. Last year, it was just rabbis. This year, it's going to be rabbis and cantors. And we have two and a half days of learning and training and advocacy ahead of us. And I am deeply excited by all of it. Um, there's 
you know? Wow. Um, it's really this, great. I mean, what's so powerful in that is that you have these community leaders that are already trusted community leaders and influencers within exactly. large groups and congregations. And so you really have this, like, it sounds like Mazon, you, you're really just tapping into this, like, this it's another way to mobilize people with within large communities um yeah so we like to think of it as grass tops mobilization we're not we know who we are and we know who we aren't at mazon right and we're we're an organization that's headquartered in los angeles with a small office in dc and one person in israel and we are not set up infrastructure wise for large-scale grassroots mobilization, which is what's necessary to make an impact at the grassroots level on this issue. Um, because the sad truth is, is that the vast majority of us aren't going to carry this issue into the voting booths with us, right? Like, if you have a single-issue voter, it's not usually a single issue about hunger. It just isn't. It's about mm -hmm. the economy. It's about, you know, when we start talking about the root causes, sure. But about just hunger, no. So we see our purpose as um, really equipping those leaders within the Jewish community who um, can focus their own communities, who can work with their own volunteer bases and their own congregants and their own students and bring them into this work. Um, that's, that's really the way that our system is set up, our staffing structure is set up, and that's just you know, we take our donors' dollars very seriously, and this is the best way for us to have the biggest impact with those limited yeah. resources. Next, I speak with Rachel Sumek. I was so wowed by Rachel's enthusiasm, innovation, and energy. She really is an all-round hunger rock star. The organization she established, Swipe Out Hunger, mobilizes college students to donate unredeemed meal points. And in collaboration with student dining services on campus, those points are donated to peers who are facing the stark reality of working through an arduous academic day with all of its demands on a half-empty stomach. Rachel began this venture as a pilot project while she was in college at UCLA. And nine years later, the organization has grown, running programs on 62 university campuses, distributing 1.6 million meals. How did you grow up Jewishly and was um, social justice, you know, a, a part of your, your Jewish roots? I, uh, well, thank you for that framing and for having me on the show. This is really exciting. And an the intersection of a identity and topic that I think about often I grew up uh, in a Iranian Jewish household. I am a first generation Jew and I was raised by Jewish immigrants in the U.S. And um, the difference between the, the difference I see about my Jewish upbringing is I grew up in a community that was very tight knit and in a lot of ways tribal in the most charming sense of that word. And so this idea yeah. of like social justice as a concept was quite foreign to me until I got to college because in our community you didn't need that intervention because we all already had each other's back like you mm. knew who needed help you were the the synagogue was like a central place for organizing and supporting families and so the idea that there had to be some like I mean when I got to Hillel as a student at UCLA and I saw 
an entire fellowship dedicated to social justice, I was like, what is the difference between like how I live every day and this mm. like niche structured mm. program? It was very hard for me to like understand. It took me a couple of years really in the Jewish social justice world to realize that my social justice work and my Jewish identity aren't supposed to be separate buckets. You know, now I, I feel like running Swipe Out Hunger is the most Jewish thing I do every day. But um, mm. the idea that we've now packaged this as a separate track still feels very foreign to me. So for me, growing up Jewishly was being this really rich, vibrant community where Shabbat dinners didn't feature traditional uh, Ashkenazi Jewish foods, but featured mm. amazing, rich saffron rices and hearty stews and every single Friday night being home. Um, mm. And it really made me value having community and i feel very lucky to now be in a very vibrant jewish community in los angeles mm -hmm. and so it's because it's so amazing um to what you said around that it just is in in the cultural and your cultural experience growing up it was just baked in and i was thinking a little bit about college hunger and just you know in, in the hunger work that i've done in, in my own career previous career and just how isolating it feels if if you don't have enough to eat and um, how separate from society you can feel, which is, you know, we'll get there as we talk more about it. Um, but to what you were saying about growing up, it just, it just sounds like it was, you had reinforcement no matter what. And um, I, I'm sure I would have loved to have eaten your Shabbat dinners, but like, <laughs> <laughs> I'd love the recipes there. Yes. Uh, it just, it just sounds so nourishing too. At the same time, the food itself, like you, it seems like you knew what it felt like to be nourished too. Um, and so like my family, for instance, whenever my parents moved to the U.S., they were mm -hmm. immigrants figuring things out. Um, and we as kids relied on that free breakfast and lunch program in school. We, my family was on food assistance for a couple of years. Like those things that we assign as not being a part of our narrative, if you talk to most first generation Jews, is definitely a part of that. So while we were nourished, while we were surrounded by community, that didn't mean that we weren't also um, beneficiaries of these safety net programs that people rely on. Mm -hmm. So it really, I mean, it was, so this, ex the experience was close to you. Um, not only did you live in this tight knit community, but you also lived um, supported from some of these, uh, these programs that, that helped keep, ensure that you had your next meal too. Um, and I actually had no yeah, idea about that until I like mm. told my mom about like the work we were doing around SNAP access, you know, SNAP is, um, the, the federal, federal food assistance program, otherwise known as food stamps. And it was only a couple of years ago when my mom said, yeah, I'm familiar with the onboarding process. I was telling her how hard it was for college students to get SNAP. And she's like, yeah, yeah, I know. And I was like, what? And so the stigma even within my own family, when my mom knows I've been working on hunger for so long and she only mm -hmm. recently told me we were on it for a year. Um, but so the wow. stigma piece is like very fascinating as well. Um, our students just sent me a picture this morning of a poster they made, our students at UCLA, and it said, uh, college hunger is a silent issue. Mm. And I think that more so than it being a hidden issue, it's not hidden. It's right in front of our faces, the stereotype of a student relying on ramen noodles 
or students like surviving on granola bars as a meal. And so we know the stereotype. It's not even hidden. It's in front of us, mm -hmm. but we're missing it. We're not seeing what the, we're not seeing the impact. It's silent, the impact of it. Um, and it's very much overlooked and not prioritized. I think you're, you're, what you bring is exactly what you're saying. It's not hidden. It's silent. And how can we open our eyes? Like what, what is your organization doing to kind of, um, or what have you seen um, that um, helps people have that aha moment? And, and, and where, in fact, was your aha moment? I'm asking like five questions. But where, in fact, was your aha yeah. moment that this existed? I would, I would say as far as like what we're doing to help make it be less of a silent issue is we launched a campaign last year called Overlooked on Campus. And what we did was take the stories of students and how hunger has impacted them and we took them out of the shadows and we made them no longer be overlooked because it's not like you you don't see it we see it and we do, we're just not talking about it so sharing stories of students who said now like when i go to the doctor they tell me that my ketone levels are normal mm. or that i'm able to stay on campus longer and go to study group because i had food um it's like these tiny moments these like vignettes into their lives where like a student says I was able to get like access into the dining hall and I was able to make friends with other people in a similar situation as me and build community around our experience. Um, students saying they felt like their college finally cared about them as a human being and not just a GPA. Mm. So the, we forget that food so often is the source of our social like community and our ability to interact with people, our relationships are such a huge part of our like self-actualization and human experience. Mm -hmm. And so when you're on a college campus, which is so hyper social, everything like your social mm -hmm. life is based off of like, you're going to have plans that Thursday night, depending on if you walk out of with that person out of class, you know, on like the 3 p.m. Thursday class, you're, it, the amount of connection between the relationships and your social life is huge and food as we all know in the general public is a huge part of our community and so what happens when i mean what we saw in our survey was students said yes this helped my academics significantly yes this helped my health significantly but where we saw the highest outcomes were around inclusivity mm. students saying this has changed how i feel on campus i felt like this wow. campus was actually for me because of food wow. these students that are receiving the the donated uh, swipes, do they, receive, I guess it might depend on what, what, how the university runs the program, but do they receive like a meal card just like other students or do they receive like a voucher or? Yeah, I can give like a quick overview of the program from the top down. So essentially Great. Swipe Out Hunger connects students to dining hall passes and typically the, the cycle goes at the end of the semester, students who have extra dining dollars on their meal plan or meal swipes on their meal plan are given the chance to stop by one of our tables. It looks like a like a fest festival table and they're mm. able to donate them. Uh, and then those meal credits turn into credits. Typically, they're transferred electronically from one student's meal plan into a fund and then from that fund onto the meal plans of other students. So they can just swipe their ID card like everyone else and gain access to the dining hall just like everyone else and students might get again as you mentioned depends on the per on on the campus um on like big urban campuses there's often greater need 
Um, and so students mm. might receive 20 or 30 meal passes per semester. And then on other campuses where students receive more financial support or there's more of a safety net, um, students will receive different ranges of swipes. And I'm, I'm curious, um, do the students that are needing the meal swipes, do they do they just are do they have an insufficient amount to like contribute to a meal plan or is it cyclical that they somehow run out yeah so jody can you guess what the average cost of a meal plan is oh this is a great question for a student for one semester oh my god not counting their housing not counting their tuition just for their meal plan um i don't know i i, I want to hear what do you yeah, what is that? $4,400 for one year. For one year. St- that means oh that there's some campuses that are $6,000, some campuses that are $7,000, some campuses that are like $2,500. It's a lot. And that's, that's a lot. So you basically, me. and so you basically, there's the college tuition, which is astounding in itself. And so there's this and housing also. And books. And everything else you might need. Mm. Oh and, my gosh. That's, and that's... Yes. And so students who don't have access to the most luxurious meal plan often just couldn't justify mm-hmm. it. There's no way they could have afforded it, mm-hmm. afforded it nevertheless, taken out a loan with Lord knows yeah. what percentage of interest to pay for a meal plan. This program is hitting them in the continuum of their lives where they're potentially can catapult themselves up out of hunger. So powerful. And the thing is, and the thing is like, we should be impressed and in awe of the students that every day are still accomplishing their academic goals in the face of this, right? Students haven't been complaining about this. They've just been like hustling through it. They've like committed to the grind. And what we say is that that's, that, and, and people often bring that up and say, I bootstrapped my way through college. I did the ramen noodle diet and all of that. And, my, and that's their defense for why our work isn't that important or why students should fend for themselves. And our response shouldn't be, you're right. Our response should be, I'm so sorry that you had to go through that. Shouldn't we make sure that no other student has to have yeah. that be their daily reality? Yeah. Not only is the Swipe Out Hunger program providing this nourishment to to students that need it, it's also empowering um, the students that are to give. So Swipe Out Hunger currently operates on 70 university campuses across the United States. Last year alone, we served over 150,000 meals, and these are like warm, nourishing dining hall meals. Um, and our impact is significant, right? Last year, over the past two, three years, we've served, we've passed over $20 million in legislation that's helped provide funding to campuses to run anti-hunger programs. We are a thought leader very much on this issue. Our goal is to be able to like, have it be where you can't talk about college Mm -hmm. student hunger without talking about swipe out hunger because what we bring to the conversation, which is different than anyone in the policy space or different from anyone in the food bank space, is that we bring the students. We bring like the actual students that are giving their meal swipes to do this, the students that are giving their time to advocate for and run these programs. And we're talking to students every single damn day. And it's a different voice and a different perspective. And for too long, the people who are the most proximate to the issue, which means that they see it 
first and foremost, they see it best mm. and they also see how it's changing, have not been at the table. This is so huge. Again, be, like college being such a formative part of life um, and, and how we perceive ourselves as givers to our community. One, there's the piece of just communicating that hunger does exist, that your classmates are in fact experiencing hunger. And then two, there's this, you can be part of the solution um, communication. Yeah, I would say that's the special sauce of our program. It's that the giving of swipes to students who are hungry is built on the students who are giving their swipes. And so it's this beautiful full cycle where you'll come to the table to donate your swipes and simultaneously learn about how you can access swipes and like getting a meal swipe. We have a student who said whenever he found out that the meal swipes he was getting mm -hmm. were funded by his peers, he's like, I felt like my family grew 10 times, right? And so having that connection happen is how you change campus culture. Culture outbeats. I mean, we all know that like culture eats strategy for breakfast. And so how do we change the campus culture as a way to ensure that the program is going to continue to exist? Mm -hmm. So it's absolutely helping students who are beneficiaries feel less stigmatized and isolated. And mm -hmm. it's helping students who have a resource get the opportunity to question, wow, what do I have in my life that I take for granted or that I just view as something that's a given? Um, and not just with their meal swipes. I mean, we had a student who as as a part of being the president of Swipe Out Hunger d during his junior year, went on to start another program where he said, I have all this furniture I'm going to throw on the curb at the end of the semester. Mm. Let mm. me rent a truck and then pick up all my friends' extra furniture and donate it to people who are recently housed. So it starts to change students' understanding of the resources that they have and how they can recycle them to help someone else. And so, yes, it's developing philanthropic habits, but it's more so from the beginning questioning, having people question who has resources and who doesn't, and how do we make it more equitable from the beginning? Our job is to, one, empower students to believe that they do have this responsibility and they do have this opportunity, and then give them the roadmap to go and lobby their university to get this approved. And typically, the people that they need to speak to are... Um, Two. One is the director of dining, the person who actually runs the meal plans, who would approve the, the logistical and financial piece. And then secondly, the other really essential part is the dean of student life, the mm -hmm. office that is actually concerned with the well-being of their students. Because even if dining services were to approve a program and they're going to say, great, we're going to give away 10,000 meal swipes to dining halls to, to students who are hungry this semester, there needs to be another office established where students who are in need can stop by mm. and get resources. Right. And so we're seeing a slow growth of such offices. Basic needs coordinators is maybe what they're called or mm. the campus social worker. Um, and it's these two parties that need to work together. Um, and I mean, how exciting that for the first time, the social worker, probably many of them have cabinets in their offices full of snacks because they know when students come in, they're typically hungry. And now yeah. for the first time, because of Swipe Out Hunger, they're in relationship with the, the department on campus that's feeding so many people who's so good at feeding students. Yeah. Why wasn't that conversation happening sooner? Is really like why our students come to the table and in the matter of fact way that only young people can make the claim that this needs to be a thing.
Yeah. And it really, it, it speaks to that inclusivity that you were talking about earlier, that there is a, there is a place to ask for help. There is a connection between the college, the campus, the university and the student when they need, when their most basic needs are not being met. Where would you love this to, this, uh, the Swipe Out Hunger program to be in, in like five years? What's your vision? So the goal that we see for Swipe Out Hunger is to continue to have the student-led movement take, really take the lead. Our job as a national nonprofit, I mean, I'm 27. I've been off campus for long enough to know that I'm not catching all the acronyms and we need more and more student leadership helping to guide mm. our work. Um, and so to have the student leadership movement grow around student hunger, have them advocate for what they need, and then also to continue working with policymakers to have higher education. I mean, whenever people, I get calls from Congress people all the time saying like, I want to work on this issue. What kind of mm. bill should I write? Mm. I say, pass a bill that makes college free for all students. Like that's the, <laughs> that's the solution. Mm. No one should be going mm -hmm. into tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt to go to college. So first and foremost, fully fund higher ed. Um, and secondly, I mean, our job is to continue to have students in higher education be as prioritized as funding mm -hmm. prisons or as funding everything else. So Swipe Out Hungar is working to make sure students' voices are at the forefront of this movement, that we are able to continue lobbying for policymakers to prioritize this, and then also to work with the businesses who have been supporting our campuses for so long, who've been running our card companies and running our food services and working side by side with them to make sure that they too understand the challenges of today's students. Um, and we can update those models as well to better serve everyone on campus. Mm -hmm. And I mean, in five years, if I've done my job right, all of these things will be normal. Mm -hmm. Higher education will be better funded. These businesses will have programs that are considerate of all students' needs. Students mm -hmm. will have the dominant narrative because the thing about young people is that they're not afraid to ask for the vision. They're not, they're not held back by any politics or any like anything. They just say what mm. they need and that helps us move faster. It's why young people are at the center of so many social change movements because they're not tolerant of the bullshit of what's going to slow us down. Yeah, I love it. It's so powerful. It is a power of the people mo moment and movement. Um, you're creating a movement and it, it's pressuring. It's putting pressure from, like you said, the students that are seeing this every day in their everyday lives. They, they're, they're understanding the urgency. They're seeing it and experiencing it and putting pressure on the systems around them and the politics around them. Exactly. What a, and and, and I know, yeah. And I know on that, if there are other people in the hunger space or other like nonprofit leaders listening, it's not easy to keep students' voices like driving. I mean, yeah. we'll, in, in, on our team, it's like very easy to think that, okay, we've, we've, we've learned enough. We're just going to push this. We're going to move this forward. But to always pause and keep students at the center and to, to like have that narrative happen yeah. doesn't happen accidentally. Um, and and I think like I, I encourage yeah. everyone to not believe that you have to have token student leadership or that you have to just once every couple of times reach out and not even students, like any audience that you're serving, any demographic. Um, it takes a lot of work to keep their voice and, and their opinions, and their perspective at the center of the work. Yeah. Um, but it's the only way you get to actually solve problems as opposed to have a great newsletter and a nice headline. 
I think as you start, we've like had those, right? But on the Forbes list, we've been mm. covered by every publication and those things haven't helped us solve the problem. And I think once you learn that, it, you, you go back and say, well, what moments do we feel really good about how we're solving the problem? And it's the moment that a student shares an insight with you or that a student takes the stage and just inspires everyone. Mm-hmm. And gosh, I, and how also how powerful will it be five, 10 years from now when you have um, the students that benefited from this organization are um, in a place of more abundance in their life and can speak <laughs> to yeah. uh, like what passionate people they'll be, you know, and advocates for, for, you know, continuing this program as well. I was in Washington, D.C. a couple weeks ago, and a student was this amazing, amazing advocate and policy savant was talking about student hunger. And after I went up to her and she um, told me that she was a beneficiary of Swipe Out Hunger when she was on campus. And so mm-hmm. you really don't know you, like what hunger looks like. You really don't know who it's benefiting or where they're going to go then you have those moments where you're like, yeah, of course you should have had that. Of course that should have been on your campus. And I'm so happy that it's becoming like the norm. Our time together usually ends with some sweet notes. With the gravity of the topic at hand and the approaching Passover season, we'll cap this episode with four questions. Question one. Judaism says, take care of the vulnerable. Who is vulnerable? We learned in our conversations that it is the college student that was once on free and reduced meals in grade school and now finds themselves bootstrapping their way through college while subsisting on ramen. Or military families who are inadvertently disqualified from receiving assistance. Or seniors who are on a fixed income and are just one diagnosis or illness away from having to decide between their meds or a meal. It's a two-income family working hard yet still unable to meet daily demands. I have to say, I worked in hunger and food insecurity for 15 years and was still shocked when talking to Rachel to learn about the prevalence of hunger on university campuses. Who is vulnerable? Question two. Can communities collectively influence policy and address barriers to hunger and raise awareness? Mazon is capturing the energy of rabbis and cantors and convening these rabbis and cantors this spring in Washington, D.C. to engage in advocacy so that they can bring these issues back to their communities. Swipe Out Hunger talks to students every day, amplifying their voices and capturing their stories because college students are bearing witness to their peers who are struggling. Swipe Out Hunger has given these students a platform to speak and as a result has become a thought leader and now a policy influencer. Earlier this year, the organization was called upon to author a piece of legislation to address college student hunger the state of California adopted the legislation and put $7.5 million behind it. Question three, how can students start an initiative on campus to potentially start a program like Swipe Out Hunger? Rachel says, talk to the dining services 
and the Dean of Students and explore how to start. I wanted to end with one word of wisdom that Naama shared with us, the teaching of Harold Schulweis, a humanitarian thought leader that inspires Mazon's work. The word is ulechen. As Naama shared, at the end of every teaching in the Torah, ulechen. Now we have taken this in, ulechen. What next? What next? I'd like to thank my guests, Naama Haviv from Mazon and Rachel Sumek from Swipe Out Hunger. You can find links to both of their organizations on redlentilconsulting.com. And much gratitude to co-producer, sound engineer, and composer, Ethan Bayless. In my next episode, we will be talking pregnancy, birth, and postpartum, connecting the wisdom that comes from the process of growing and birthing a babe to what this might teach us about Passover. Also, I will be leading a seven-week mindful food journey, eating with the Omer, the special time between Passover and Shavuot, with recipes, rituals, videos, and weekly inspiration, you can connect to the transformational power and the vibes of the season. If you're interested, email me, jody at redlentilconsulting.com. Until then, I am Jody Bayless, and this is Purple Honey. Imagine going into any business and saying, you've been running this business the same way for 50 years. Can you now give us tens of thousands of dollars of profit and change your logistical model? Um, And so there was a lot of resistance, less so because people didn't think it was a problem. Sometimes that that was a problem initially and since has been um, resolved because the the issue is getting so much press and research. But initially it was um, a hesitation around even considering the burden of changing the model. And I remember a couple of years after I spoke to the dining director at UCLA, who was the first campus to approve this program. And he said, you know, I didn't want to stop your, it was very, very hard to some months of negotiation and lobbying and organizing and mobilizing power to, to get this to happen. And then he said, a couple of years later that it wasn't that I didn't want the program to happen. It wasn't that we couldn't afford it. It was that I was terrified of all the phone calls I would get from other university dining directors saying, I can't believe you opened the floodgates and that you approve this program because now we all have to approve the program because that's how it works, right? Once you have one case study, one example, it becomes easier to prove yourself to get the next one and the next one.